We're in, uh, our, as you know, in our study of the book of Exodus, I want to deal with chapter 19. So uh, we sort of got started with that uh, last Wednesday. Now we want to really uh, dig into this because this is a this is a very important chapter because it sets the stage for um, the giving of the law. But it is a an introduction for you and me to be reminded of who God is. And that's very important for us. But it's also for, important for us as we read this. This is their first, as a people now, this is their first introduction at a very personal level of who God is. Now, I have to parse how I said that carefully. I'm not saying they didn't know God. That's not what I mean. But they had seen God do incredible things in in his majesty and power and glory in their deliverance out of Egypt. They had seen the evidence of the ten plagues. They had seen the cloud and the fire that led them uh, throughout their journey so far. They had, they had seen him part the Red Sea and, and all of that. But what now they're going to see is they're going to be at Mount Sinai and they're going to see God demonstrate his power to them personally. And it's going to, it'll both be a combination of awe, A-W-E, awe and worship and fear and adoration and just absolute overwhelming majesty and power of God revealed to them. That's important. Um, I just wish, and it's, it's so hard to even get a mind picture of this, but I wish there's some way we could capture this, where I could take you to the Southern Arabian Peninsula have us all stand at Mount Horeb, or sometimes called Mount Sinai, and I, we could read this and talk about it, but we can't do that. <laughs> at least I don't think you would want to get on a plane with me to go to what is basically today Yemen. Yemen's not a nice place to be in today, so that's probably not a, 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 a viable option. So and, and as we begin this, what I'd like you to do is take the map that I gave you, and again, I think I distributed all the copies that I had that I had left over. But uh, let's just kind of review where where we have come. They have left Goshen, and they uh, crossed the Red Sea, the very northern tip of the Red Sea, and they have been moving down along the um, the eastern coast of the Red Sea. Last week, we, where we left them at Rephidim, where they did, uh, under Moses and Joshua's leadership, Joshua led the military, Moses was up on the mountain holding his arms up, and they defeated the Malachites. Now, what, what happens now is they move all the way, I hope you're following, they all the way down to the southern tip of the Arabian Peninsula at what is, um, what is called... Uh, Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb, H-O-R-E-B. It's called that in the Old Testament. So whenever you see Horeb, it's Sinai. It has several names. Today, it's a mountain called Jubal Masa. And it is, that's J-U-B-A-L, and then a second word, M-E-S-A. 
And uh, there is some dispute about that, but I'm convinced that's where it is. And uh, as it is today, this is a desert area. I mean, this isn't a lush, beautiful, rocky mountain type or Swiss Alps type of mountain. This is a desert, and it's a very rugged mountain. Uh, and this is where God wants them to be. And they are in the desert because God has been supernaturally providing for them. The quail at night, the, the um, bread that he makes, the manna, manna is how you pronounce it in Hebrew, the manna in the morning. And he has been guiding them and providing for them day after day after day. Now they're at the mountain. And the text begins on the first day of the third month. And I had given you a calendar as well a number of weeks ago. This is uh, calendar number or spot number three. This is uh, Shivan. It would be May, June for our calendar. So now they're in the third month. Uh, after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Ephraim, they entered the desert of Sinai. Now, again, Ephraim, we talked about that last week. You can find that on the map. They're on the eastern side of the Red Sea. I just, I think it's important, many people don't do this, but I think it's important to, as best we can, chart the geography when you're in the Bible. That's why maps are valuable and so on. And encamped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Again, one more time, the Bible calls it Sinai, Horeb, H-O-R-E-B, or today it's Jubal Masa. They're all the same mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the house of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. Now, the house of Jacob, that's the covenant name. The people of Israel, remember, Israel is Jacob's covenant name. You remember that? From all the way back in Genesis 32, when we studied that about five years ago, or whenever we were studying that. But I'm just you should be able to make these connections in what we have been studying. You yourselves have seen, verse 4, what I did to Egypt. That reminds plagues, parting of the Red Sea, etc. And brought you up to, uh, and how I carried you on eagles' wings. Now, that, that's just a metaphor, but that is used a number of times throughout the Bible. It is used in the book of Revelation, where God is like a mother eagle taking care of her young. So it's the metaphor, is I'm not only a powerful majestic God who delivered you from bondage in Egypt, I'm also the one who cares for you. And I delivered you on eagle's wings. I mean, you kind of see what God is doing? It's a metaphor. It's a figure of speech. But it's reminding them he's incredibly powerful. But he's also the one who cares for them, like a mother cares for her young on eagle's wings. And brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then all, out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now there are a couple of things I just want you to notice here. Keep my covenant. What covenant? The one he is about to detail. In chapter 20. 
Because so far we have studied the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant is an unconditional covenant. They don't have to do anything. They just have to follow the Lord. But he's talking here about what we will call the Mosaic Covenant or more commonly known throughout the Bible as the law. And so God is saying, this is the arrangement now we're going to to engage in. We're going to enter in. We're going to develop together. And you will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. The second phrase, a holy nation, that's that shouldn't be too difficult for you to, to understand, but let's make sure you understand what holy means. That Hebrew word at its root means separate. You and I are called to be holy. The Lord says in the Old Testament, the Lord says in the New Testament, a very familiar part is in, in First Peter, be holy as I'm holy. In other words, he's calling us out to be separate people who distinctly walk with him in obedience, in loving obedience. Jesus says, since you love me, keep my commandments. And so the Lord is saying this to the people, you are my separate people. I've chosen you. The other thing, did you notice that? He refers to them as a kingdom of priests, which is, holy nation, that's probably a little easier for you to work through, but a kingdom of priests. Let's think about that for just a minute. God said to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, Abraham, through you, all the nations will be blessed. Your descendants are going to be as numerous as the stars of the sky, sand of the seashore, etc. I'm going to give you land, but you will be a channel of my blessing. Now, ultimately, because that's what the Old Testament does, the Old Testament just walks us through, and that's where we leave the Old Testament, we know that will be the Messiah. And you open the New Testament, you find out who the Messiah is. It's Jesus. And Jesus is a Jew. Jesus is a descendant of Abraham. Now, I'm saying all that because that alerts us. Kingdom of priests is Abrahamic covenant language. You will be the intermediators, the mediators, the ones who give the human race an opportunity through you to have a relationship with me. Because a priest isn't, among other things, a priest is an intercessor, an intermediary. That's what God said to Abraham. Abraham, through you, all the nations will be blessed. So in this statement of God at the base of Mount Sinai to these people through Moses who is speaking, these are extraordinary words. I'm not sure every single person hearing this understood all that, but they will start to understand it, which is what chapter 20 and 21 and 22 and all that's all about. So it's laying out a, let me put it the way we sometimes put it in the 21st century, God is laying out their mission. This is their mission. This is their mission statement. You'll be a holy nation, a separate nation from me. You're my chosen people, but you're also a kingdom of priests. It is through you that I will bless the nations. Jim. So when we looked at Genesis, in the Abrahamic covenant, it was, it was an absolute covenant. Absolute, unconditional. Right. 
But here we read, there's a conditional thing, if you will indeed obey my voice, and so on. So is there a conditional component? The Mosaic Covenant is conditional. Let's put this another way. The Abrahamic covenant is an unconditional unilateral covenant. It does, God, it is dependent on, remember Genesis 17, God walked through. As they cut the covenant, God walked through that together while Abraham was in a, in, 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 uh, in a trance or sleep or, or whatever. The Mosaic covenant isn't like that. The Mosaic covenant is bilateral and it's conditional. Because the Mosaic covenant and that's how I want to approach it when we, we get into chapter 20. The Mosaic Covenant, the law, is defining how the people of Israel are to walk with God. Okay, what does that mean? God has to take care of their sin. Jesus hasn't come yet. How's he going to take care of their sin? The burnt offerings. The peace offerings. And as a Jewish person faithfully carried out that their sin, and the word the Bible uses is atoned covered. A Yom Kippur, once a year, Day of Atonement, the whole nation, the high priest goes into the holy place, etc. Secondly, the other part of the law, which we'll get into in weeks to come, is, and it's really, it's, it's important, that's how I want you to think about it with me when we study this, God, God regulates every aspect of their life. Diet, how they're to make their clothes, how they're to care for their animals, etc. Why? Because every aspect of the light, their life, as they go through their daily life, mundane, innocuous things of life, they're to think of God. You make your food in a certain way, you're to think of God. Kosher food, it's to cause you to think of God giving you these, and some of it has dietary benefits and so on, but the point is they didn't understand diet and digestion and all that stuff, but they understood that this is what I'm supposed to do. And the mark of this covenantal relationship under Moses is a Sabbath. You work six days, the seventh day is for me. That's what I'm saying. And so that's what God says. Keep my covenant. He doesn't mean the Abrahamic covenant. He means the one he's about to lay out for them at Sinai. And so their relationship is an unconditional covenantal relationship based on the promises God made. But for them to walk with God, the common art, it's according to the law. And if they do not do that, God will discipline them. And in chapter 28, he says, even I'll send you into exile. Which is what he does. Fred. Um, Why are you sitting so far away? You have never been this far away from me in one of the classes since I started teaching them. I'm sorry. No, that's okay. <laughs> I'm only kidding. He didn't shower this morning. Oh, okay. Is that Okay. Uh, you know, today we have the Holy Spirit. Once we have the That's right. covenant promise given to us in Christ, and that reconciliation with God. And when Jim brings up, and then your answer was, this is a daily reminder. Did, is that sort of a, a way to help them remember what we have within our spirit, abiding in our heart and soul, the leading and the pricking of the Holy Spirit as we walk in our daily lives today? Is that, or how would you... Well, that, no, that's exactly right, because let's keep with the covenant idea. 
you and I, our, when we put our faith in Christ, our relationship with God is no longer according to the strictures of the law, the Mosaic Covenant. Why? Because that was fulfilled by Christ. So what's the covenantal relationship we have? It's the new covenant. And the new covenant has a sign. That sign is the Holy Spirit. As circumcision was the sign of the Abrahamic covenant, as the Sabbath was the sign of the Mosaic covenant, as the throne is the sign of the Davidic covenant, the Holy Spirit is the sign of the new covenant. He indwells us. And to further that very important analogy, Paul mentions this twice, we are the temple of God, the temple of the Holy Spirit. He indwells us. And so, I mean, you can see there is, a, there is a strong connection between all of the Old Testament imagery that was so vital to the Israelites' walk with God and the New Testament, because testament is just another word for covenant. You probably know that. They're, they're basic synonyms. And so that it's the same thing in terms of relationship with God, but it's no longer based on the shed blood of animals and keeping the law. It's now based According to the book of Hebrews, that's the thesis of the book of Hebrews, it's a once-for-all sacrifice, the sacrifice of Christ. It's once-for-all. And then, and that's what the Hebrew book of Hebrews, didn't we study Hebrews in here? Yeah, I thought we had. And you, you might remember that the, the book of Hebrews in chapter 10 and so on really develops the aspects of the new covenant. I mean, so the continuity between this, the, te- the covenant, the testaments, is just remarkable, which is what I'm trying to do here. I'm serious. I'm trying to make sure you see this connection. Uh, so this is a two-way, as you say, bilateral covenant. The Mosaic covenant. The, yes. Right. Mm-hmm. And so it, it, it calls for the Jews to obey the law. But it appears to be unspecific as what that punishment might be. And does no, it's very clear. Deuteronomy 28. The, the what God and the, the the term that's really normally used is the disciplinary judgment of it's discipline it's to correct to modify behavior is it, God's very clear um, if you walk with me in obedience according to the law I will bless you the land will be abundant you will you will experience my material as well as my spiritual blessings but if you don't then you will experience drought you will experience judgment and if you do not do it. And ultimately, I will send you into exile. I will take you from the land that I gave you. And that's exactly what he does in 586 B.C. when Nebuchadnezzar destroys Jerusalem. But then he brings, he said, but I will bring you back. Okay, so, so it, 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 at no time does he say that you will be condemned. Not in, not, no, not in, no, not in the real meaning of that word condemned. Because God always say, uh, says, I will bring you back. And it, it doesn't always necessarily mean individual people, but it's his covenant people. I will bring you back. And that's the power of Ezekiel 36. I'm using that as an example. Ezekiel 36 and 37. I will bring you back. At the end, one of the markers of the end, the eschaton, the end times, is God regathering his people to their land. That is a covenant promise. That land is a covenant promise. This, you can't say that today in the world, 2017. Israel deserves that land because God gave it to them. Well, Islam is going to accept that. Hindus are going to accept that. The United Nations is going to accept that. 
but but that's irrelevant. They're not living according to to God's word. But for you and me, we understand what God's doing. God is fulfilling His covenant promise. He said He was going to do this. It seems to me that there, there are then real fundamental. It's got to be discord among the Jewish community. Not only to the I mean today. Nation, today, you mean? Yes, definitely. But to secular Jews. Oh, definitely. Oh, definitely. If, I, if, I, if I'm an Orthodox Jew, the damage that those are doing to my people. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, no, absolutely. Um, Tom Friedman wrote a book years ago called From Beirut to Jerusalem. It's dated. It was written in the 1980s. But he uh, does a wonderful job. He, he divides and helps us to understand the four major groups of Jews today. And, and in terms of when I should rephrase that four group, four major groups of Jews in terms of how they look at their covenantal relationship. That's probably a better way. And a major one, and I think that's what you're mentioning, Rod, are the secular Jews, the Jews who uh, many of them are actually they're atheists in how they live their life. But at the, at the same time, they still are Jews. And that's one of the problems. Even how do you define a Jew? What does it mean to be a Jew in 2017? That's a very significant question. Now, in the nation state of Israel, the rabbis have decided that question. It's law. The Knesset has approved it. The rabbis have defined what it means to be a Jew. And as you probably know this, I'm sure you've heard this, anywhere in the world, wherever there's a Jew, if they want to return to Israel, they are instantly, instantly a citizen. And wherever you live in the world, if you're a Jew, if you want this, your children can come and study in Jerusalem free of charge. And if you want your children to serve in the military, you they will walk in. David Brooks, I don't know if you know that name. David Brooks is a columnist, newspaper columnist. And uh, his column appears in lots of newspapers. But he's Jewish, and his son is in, the tel- in Tel Aviv and serving two years in the army. Because he's a Jew. He, he wants his son to be exposed to that. Um, when I read the Bible, I kind of wander around in here a little bit. <laughs> Good. Good. The laws about social justice. Yes. And he's very specific about the punishments or how he's going to correct the people. That's right. Or kill them or whatever. Mm-hmm. There. But that's not that specific in this part. Not yet. No, not yet. But that's I, I will talk a little bit about that, Woody, because the law is this that you have no idea because we're sort of used to it but how absolutely revolutionary this was in the ancient world. What God is laying out is not only a relationship with him, dealing with you know, how you relate to him and sin, it's how you relate to one another. What, what does a just society look like? That's what God's doing here. What is a just society? It's based on lex talionis. That every action has a, a consequence to it. And God will hold them accountable for being a just society. That's why when you read the minor prophet Amos, Amos is one of the best to really, minor prophet Amos rails against Israel because they have become an unjust society. They have not treated the poor correctly. They have not treated, because God laid out how he wanted them to deal. So anyway. All right. Lots of questions. It's. Can I ask one more? (laughs) No. (laughs) Yes, of course. Um, from the standpoint of the Jews now and, and what they believe in, um, what do they look forward to when you say God promises to bring them back? Like in Revelation when the Jews... Shall now, the, a Jew would not study Revelation? No. 
But um, they would study Isaiah, they would study Jeremiah, and so on. So again, John, you have to divide them into the groups. The secular Jew doesn't give a hoot about those things. They really Anything don't. Internal. They really no. don't. No. But the Reformed Jew, conservative Jew, and especially the Orthodox Jew, and really specifically Orthodox Jew, for them, they're looking for the Messiah to come. Okay. Because they do not believe Jesus is the Messiah, so they're still looking for the first advent of the Messiah. Okay. You know, and so uh, that... The, the, all those messianic prophecies in the Old Testament, they're still waiting for those to be fulfilled. All right? Okay, we've only had a few verses so far, and it's a quarter after. I did. Another question. Who are the four again? Secular, Reform, Orthodox? Uh, the secular, Reform, Conservative, and Orthodox. And actually, there are about five different orthodox blocks, too. But that's too complicated. It is. I mean, it's really complicated. If you know anything about the politics of modern-day Israel, there are many, many, many political parties. And the coalition that Benjamin Netanyahu has put together includes a number of very orthodox political parties. The most famous one is a single man who is the party, and he's in the Knesset. And he's a part of his coalition. I mean, it's bizarre. I mean, that is what happens when you move from a democratic republic like the United States to a parliamentary democracy, which is what Israel has. A parliamentary democracy is very complex. And the only way you can rule is by building coalitions. And that's one of the reasons why some are saying the United States should adopt that, because our system isn't working anymore. I'm sure you noticed that. It is not working very well. The way in which our democracy, democratic republic was supposed to work according to the founders um, when they met in the summer of, of 1783, it is not working very well anymore. And I have an opinion why it isn't working, but it has nothing to do with politics. But that's not what we're here to talk about. Let's go on, verse 7. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. Again, summarizing what we just read. The people responded together, we will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. Verse 9, the Lord said, I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. Then Moses told the people what the Lord had said. And the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Now, we're at a point where I've got to do some explaining, and I hope I won't lose you here. Um, Before the Lord descends in a cloud to Mount Sinai, and before Moses goes up to Mount Sinai to meet with the Lord and receive the law, the people have to cleanse themselves. The the, the NIV uses the word consecrate. And what this means is a three-day purification ritual. Now think, and we'll detail that in just a second. Think with me about that. Why would God mandate that? Why 
Why would God mandate this? That they must consecrate. That Moses is told to tell the people, you must consecrate yourself. You can tell them what he wants them to do. But why would God do that? Why would God want that? Okay. It, it's, and that's probably the key word. Because God is holy and perfect and righteous. They are not. And it is something that will be worked out throughout the ritual of the law. I am holy, you're not. But for you to have a relationship with me, I've got to atone for your sin, and you have to constantly be aware of the distance between you and me, that is between God and the people, and how I am making it possible for you to relate to me. Does that, do those sentences make sense to you? So you're saying it's prepare your body and your clothes and your heart and your mind. Yes. So that they can focus. Because you are not like God. This is God speaking to Israel. You're not like me. I'm holy and perfect and righteous. But I created you. I want a relationship with you. But it has to be on my terms. Another version of the Bible, that part there, said they're not to have sex. During this period, yeah, we're not there yet, and that is one of the things that he's going to say. But it's, it's. I, I want you to see what, what can happen here as you read this, and you say, "Well, this is ridiculous. Why is God being so specific, and why is He dealing with it? Because it is to help them understand who He is, and to help them understand, or maybe be reminded of who they are. Now, let's let's bring this to the New Testament, the New Covenant. Who bridges that gap? Jesus. See, Jesus bridges that gap. Because once he fulfills all the aspects of the law and dies a substitutionary death and is resurrected in power conquering death, that gap is bridged. I use a, a, a slide in, when I teach some of this. of this, this enormous, two enormous mountains and this huge cavern between them. This is God, and this is humanity. And then the bridge across it is the cross. And I mean, that's just, it's a visual of, of what, again, is the central argument of the book of Hebrews. That Jesus' sacrifice is a once-for-all sacrifice, creating the bridge between God and humanity, and the only requirement to walk the bridge is faith. Put your trust. That what Christ did on the cross was for you. He solved the problem. And now you can have a relationship with God. You see, it still existed in Israel, where we are, 1446 B.C. It was still here, this gap. But what bridges is God coming down to them and establishing the parameters of how they will walk with him. And it's, it's arduous. Why? Because he's holy and righteous and perfect, and they're not. But he wants a relationship with them. That's why he created them. So it has to be on his terms. It can't be, well, just you all come. It doesn't matter how you live, how you act, just you all come. That is not what God does. If that were the way he does it, then his holiness and his righteousness is meaningless. But that's not what God does, because it is impossible for God to do that because of who he is, his nature, and his character. But please notice, as he's doing here, and he does at the cross. He takes the initiative and provides the way. 
Okay, I saw some hands up. Yeah, Fred. Is there a parallel between those three days of preparation to receive the law and then Christ being in the tomb and then on the third day? Have you made any connections in Scripture? Unless the Scriptures are very specific about that, I'm always a little careful, Fred. But it, it would certainly seem reasonable to conclude that three days seem to be important. But I mean, I don't, want, I don't think we need to make connections about exactly everything God wants them to do. Oh, that's Jesus. That's, I'm not sure, but you know, it's like seven. Seems to be an important number to God. So let's look at what he wants them to do. Good night. You're asking too many questions. No, I'm just kidding. It's great. They're great questions. It shows your thinking. Now again, remember the purpose of all these. They seem maybe at first arbitrary, but they're not. They're to demonstrate that chasm between God and his people. Have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day. Okay, there now you get this. It's going to last for three days. A three-day purification rite ritual. Because on that day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Continuing a second regulation. Put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, be careful that you do not approach the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain is to be put to death or to be stoned or shot with arrows. Not a hand is to be laid on them. For the people or animals, they shall not be permitted to live. Only the ram's horn sounds a long blast. May they approach the mountain. Okay, now again, you think, goodness me, Lord. That sounds awfully both arbitrary and why are you doing that? Because the mountain will be the visible, tangible, tactile, objective way for the people of Israel to see a manifestation of God. He's going to come down in the cloud. There's going to be earthquakes and there's going to be, you know, the, the, the sounds from thunder and lightning and all that, because this is God manifesting himself, revealing himself. And that mountain is now holy. So to make sure they understand the sacredness of this, I don't want you to touch the mountain. Thirdly, after Moses had gone down from the mountain to the people, he consecrated him. They washed their clothes. Then he said to the people, prepare yourselves for the third day. Again, there's that third day again. Abstain from sexual relations. Now, that doesn't mean that sex is evil. That's not what it means. All it means is that it's a part of the purification rite at this point. Your mind is not to be on sexual intimacy. Your mind is to be on God. It, it, that's just another way of saying that. It's not making any kind of theological comment about sexual relationship. That's not what it's saying. It's just saying what God is, as you, as you cleanse yourselves in your outer body, as you are making certain you do not touch the mountain, because that will be where the, God, where the Lord will reveal himself. Thirdly, your mind is to be on the Lord, not on other things that can draw you away. And sexual relations could be one of those at that point. Verse 16. Now, we're at the point where God, um, where, rather where Moses describes what happens and what this looks like. This is where if we could go to that mountain and just get a sense of incredible. On the morning of the third day, 
Okay, now we're now at that third day. There was thunder and lightning, a thick cloud over the mountains, and a very loud trumpet blast. Okay, all of those, all three of those, are very observable. You can hear it, tactile, objective. I mean, you can see it. Manifestations of the power and majesty of God. They're not going to see God, but they will see every manifestation of who he is, his power and his majesty. Everyone in the camp trembled. Verse 17, then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai, again, on the map you see it, very southern part, sometimes called Mount Horeb, was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire, because the Lord, the smoke billowed up from it like, notice that's a simile, like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. As the sound of the trumpet loomed louder and louder, Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. The Lord descended to the top of Mount Sinai, called Moses to the top of the mountain. Again, I just want to remind you, again, the significant chasm that exists between God and the people. And at this point in history, who will be that mediator? Moses will be. Moses is always going to stand in the gap between God and the people. When they complain and grumble, Moses will stand in the gap. Now, doesn't it, all that means that, that that is part of Moses' role. He has chosen him for that role, that he is God. And the Lord came down, go down and warn the people so that they do not force their way through to see the Lord. Many of them perish. Even the priests who approach the Lord must consecrate themselves or the Lord will break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, now again, that, you can just see why God would say that. Because what happens when something fantastic occurs? People want to go see it. There's a major accident in West Omaha. There's a number of people in the city who get in a car and want to go see it. I don't understand that mentality, but some people do. Or some massive tragedy, they'll get in a car and want to go see it. So God is just saying, there's some people who are going to want to do that. Tell them, don't do it. Because if they touch the mountain, they will die. So God says again, verse 23, put limits around the mountain. What does that mean? Did he put up a little fence? More than likely what it means is he outlined it with rocks. That's how they did things in the ancient world. He put like a, do not go beyond this. This is as far as you can go. He's just setting the limit. Don't go any farther than that. The Lord replied, go down and bring Aaron up with you, but the priests and the people must not force their way through to come up to the Lord, or he will break out against them. Moses went down to the people and told them. All right, now, the three-day preparation and purification ritual is over. God has uh, visibly come down in that cloud. I mean, they don't see God, but they see the cloud. They hear the thunder and light and hear it, the, the thick cloud, etc. all of that. Now, chapter 20, God is about to give the law. Now it's almost 12.30, so we have 15 minutes. There is no way we're going to get through all this. But before we started, on any question? Jim. Not a question, it's an observation. What an amazing manifestation of God. You know, we, people tend to trivialize him and 
treat God as if he's just sort of great comment. Something light and convenient. great comment. What, what an amazing demonstration of his authority and power and his might. Yeah, great, great question. Great comment. Great observation. It really is. And I think that's one of the I think that's one of the things, Jim, that you and I must always remember about God. Because of Jesus and all that he did for us. And he even says, because of who you are my friends, he says to the disciples and by extension, we can sometimes diminish that understanding of who God is. Now, I don't want to get into this other than just to make this comment, and I hope I don't offend anybody because I don't know what you read and how much you like. But there's a book and now a movie out called The Shack. And I I have several concerns about that, but my major concern is it really diminishes who God is. And it, and I don't, it's, it's hard and controversial today because I know what he was trying to do. I read, uh, when the book came out, I read the book and read a lot about the book because I knew people were going to be asking me about it. But it isn't so much the message it's sending. The message it's sending is, even in a horrible tragedy, this man, if you know the story, his daughter was killed, was kidnapped and killed brutally. And he's called to this shack where he meets with God. And it's the Trinitarian manifest. But it's the way in which God is presented. Because every time... In the Bible, when someone meets with God, they see God in all his power and glory. But also, he's taking the step to contact them and so on. And that's, that's what concerns me a little bit. It diminishes who God really is in our, in our mind. And we can't, we can't ever divorce, despite all that Jesus has done for us, we can't ever divorce who God really is and what he is really like. What is amazing is that, that God, as we're seeing here, described in song, really wants a relationship with me. He loves me that much. He really wants me to have a relationship with him, which will go on into eternity. And that's just, oh, that's confounding to me. So let's try not to bring God down to the point where he's just like you and I. He isn't. And yet it's, it's hard to do that. It is very hard to do that. So anyway, that's all I have to say about that. I want you to notice the very first, God spoke these words, the very first part of verse 2. This is, this is extraordinary. This is staggering. It is so familiar to you and me, we read this and almost yawn. Yeah. I am Yahweh, your Elohim. I want to take that apart. First of all, I am. In Hebrew, I am is connected with Lord. Because I am is a title of God. Exodus 3.14, which we studied a number of months ago. And the Lord Jesus Christ, seven times in the Gospel of John, builds a discourse around I am. I am the light of the world. I am the bread of life. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. Remember all that? So the I am is saying, 
I'm Yahweh. And Hebrew has no vowels. It's only a language of consonants. So it's Y-H-W-H. And then your Elohim. And when, I, when a Jewish person in 1446 would hear this read, they had just heard Genesis read, and they remembered that chapter 1 of Genesis, Elohim creates. Chapter 2 of Genesis, Yahweh institutes marriage. What this declaration is doing is connecting the two. The I am is also the Elohim. So it's the sovereign, self-existent creator of the universe who is also the one who wants relationships. Because Elohim creates relationships. Yahweh Elohim. It's that powerful tying together of the names. And what is really important is the pronoun your. This is relational. I'm not just the creator. I'm not just the sovereign, self-existent one of the universe. I'm your God. And this fleshes out this intimate relationship that God wants with his people. And for you and me, as partakers of the new covenant, it's still there. And it's described in the language of the New Testament. He is our Heavenly Father. We are his children. Now, I know you don't get excited about biblical truth, but that's something that we should be excited about. Amen. That's the God that we serve. He isn't some distant landlord. He's not some you know, cosmic... Um, ogre up there wanting to make your life miserable. He wants a relationship with you. And because we are sinners, he has to deal with that. In Israel, he, he dealt with that through the law, which bridged the gap. In the New Covenant, he bridges the gap through Jesus. And that's once for all. Nothing else ever needs to be done anymore. To walk across that gap, you must put your faith in him. Christ. And so it's just, it's, it's, a, it's a remarkable statement. You will search in vain to find anything like that in any other ancient Near Eastern religious worldview. Their view, the Babylonians, Mesopotamians, the Philistines, the Moabites, the Ammonites, as well as the Egyptians, their gods, they were all plural, their gods are so distant. And in many ways, their gods regard humans as a nuisance, not God. And so it's just remarkable. So that relationship is defined first by history and second by ethical standards. History. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt and of the land of slavery. History. I'm the God of history. I'm the sovereign Lord of history. And this is what I did for you. But it's also, the, it meaning the relationship, is also defined by ethical standards. There is a moral law to God's world. As the creator, as the Yahweh Elohim, of the, he has every right to do that. Doesn't he? 
You can, you can debate it, you can discuss it, you can protest it, but the sovereign Lord creator of the universe has the right to make the rules. Again, I'm putting it in ways that I hope I offend you. No. But I just, I want you to see it there because that's exactly what's going on. Does God, if he's the creator, does he have the right to set the standards? I mean, of course he does. And so what he's doing, then you have to, okay, if he sets the standards, then what's the purpose for the standards? Well, you have two choices. It's either make you miserable or it has your best interest at heart. The Babylonians said the gods sit stand to make us miserable. They hate us. They make our life miserable. That's why they throw lightning bolts at us. That's why they send thunder at us, because they hate us. That's why they send floods. They hate us. How does the Bible address those things? Well, tragedies and storms are a result of human sin because the world's cursed because of sin. But God is constantly neutralizing and undoing that through his moral law and through Christ. So what he's laying out here, these are the standards of my world. These are the, I am revealing yourself, I'm revealing, let me put it another way. I'm revealing myself, this is God speaking, through my ethical standards. You will learn about me and my character by hearing and understanding my standards. But I, I'm, I'm trying to lay this out so that once we get into it, you can look at this and really hopefully understand what God, because almost always, and it, it's still true today in many churches, when you study the Ten Commandments, you study it negatively. Because it's stated, thou shalt not. And you, we, we kind of think about it almost in a negative, restrictive, confining way. That is not the way we're to understand this. I want you to understand this as a fantastic window into the true character of God. The law reveals the character of God. And this moral, ethical framework that is created extends throughout, even into the New Covenant. And even though you and I are not bound by the Sabbath anymore because the, 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 the Sabbath is fulfilled in Christ and so on, Still, the idea of Shabbat, of rest, is still a new covenant principle. Read the book of Hebrews. And I will talk about that when we get to it. So let's get started, okay? As you know, or at least I think you know, the first four commandments, the first four ethical standards, relate to their relationship with God. The last seven standards, relate to their relationship with one another. And so what you have is you have a, an entire ethical framework that helps us to understand what Jesus said. Jesus was asked the question by a Pharisee. They tried to draw him into a major debate of first century Judaism, which of the ten is the greatest commandment. You remember what Jesus said? He didn't get into the debate. He refused to. He just said, you shall love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Commandments one through four. And your neighbor as yourself. The rest of the commandments. 
And so it's a, it's a remarkable summary. So what's the law about? The law is about loving God and loving people. I'm rather convinced very few of you around this table ever thought of the law in that way. That the law is about love. As a matter of fact, in, the, in Matthew's account of this, Jesus says this, the entire law and the prophets, and this is the, Hebrew, the Greek word he uses, the law and the prophets, they are suspended from those two statements. They hang on those two statements. What two statements? Loving God and loving people. See, that is how we should study the law. It defines their relationship with God and it defines their relationship with one another. And so what is God doing? He is laying out the parameter. You know what parameters means? The boundaries, the framework for how you live your life. Because the alternative is, well, I'll just live my life the way I want to live it. I'm an autonomous, sovereign unto myself being. I'll do whatever I want. And God says, yes, you are a responsible free agent. Go for it. And then what do you see? Self-destructive, dysfunctional behavior that hurts people and hurts God. Or you can choose to live the way I, as your creator and redeemer, are sharing with you is the best way to live. The law is for our best interest. George. I was listening to a, a radio program recently and talked about the Ten Commandments. And we said, you know, everybody thinks it's, they're intended to make you miserable. <laughs> but the truth is, they're intended to set you free. Exactly. Exactly. And that is really, that, when you use that term free, yes. it, it gave me a different perspective. That's great. That's great. Thank you for sharing that because that's exactly what it is. I think it's because it, it, they're put in the negative, thou shalt not. We look, we just naturally, you know how teenager, thou shalt not, immediate pushback. Oh, yeah? <laughs> so you learn as a parent to try to put it in the positive. And if that doesn't work, then you're back to the negative. No, I'm just kidding. But So God, God is not doing it that way. And so it's, it's the, the proper way to understand it is just how George put it. This is freeing. And that's why Jesus says in John chapter 8, if the Son makes you free, S-O-N, you shall be free indeed. The path to freedom, the path walking with God. If you don't choose that path, you will be enslaved to something. And I don't know about you men, but I rub shoulders in, in my ministry in my church and in some of the other things I do with a lot of people that are in bondage. And it's real tragic because they buy a lie that the path to freedom is through, and just you can put anything in the blank, anything, that the path to freedom is. So God is saying, so let's do one, Okay. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, you do not have any idea of how radical this was in 1446 B.C. 
Because Israel has been created as a nation as they leave bondage in Egypt. Did Egypt practice a radical monotheism? Do you know what I'm seeing by monotheism, one God? No. How about Babylonia? No. How about the earlier Assyrian Empire? No. How about the Philistines? No. How about the Canaanites? No. How about the Mo... I mean, you just go all the way around the world. God revealed himself. What we sometimes do when we construct history is we say, well, humanity began as a bunch of animists and then became polytheists. And then, I mean, you get all the way up, then monotheists. And then the crowning achievement is atheism. That's history. You know, this is the way you look at history. Now, that's how the modern secularist looks at it. You know, early humans were just a bunch of animists. Animists means worship of nature. And monotheism, well, they're the Jews and the Christians, but now we've been liberated and we understand. You know what the Bible says? The Bible says you start with monotheism and fall into polytheism and atheism. That is history. This isn't history. This is tristic. And the Bible declares this, but Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through 34, charts this out for us. That's exactly how, and that is human history. It didn't start like this, where we're on this escalator progress, we're finally becoming enlightened. No, this isn't enlightenment. This is stupidity. This is enlightenment. So when God says you shall have no other gods before, that is a radical commitment to monotheism. There's one God. He's revealed himself in creation, in conscience, in his moral law, and in Jesus. And all through the Bible, it insists on one thing, a response to that God. You either respond to him in obedience because of who he is, or you reject him. Both have a consequence. I've got to quit. Uh, quickly, it's a five-second question. What, I hope it's five seconds. What's the difference then between animism and, and uh, paganism? Uh, well, paganism can involve animism, polytheism, can involve henotheism, where among many, many gods you choose one as a top god. They're all under the label paganism, where you're rejecting the clarity of who God is. Men, we've covered a lot of territory, uh, but a lot of it didn't have to do with Scripture. It had to do with your questions that came from Scripture, but that's all right. So next week, we will pick up, I don't, are we here next week? Or are, are we here next week? So next week, we'll meet here again, and make sure you bring this, because we will get into this immediately. The, the very first thing I'm going to do is draw your attention to this. Why did God give this law? And I want to really go through this. You'll see a series of bullets. It's very, very important. All right. I think I've gotten everything done. Let's pray. There is a yeah. Oh, okay. Sure. This is a prayer for a man who uh, called, and he said he didn't want to be identified, but he said, I, if you're meeting today, I need you to pray. I don't know the basis of it. Okay. So just God would know the details. Okay. Okay, okay. 
Father, we're thankful for our time together. Thank you for these men. Thank you for their willingness to commit an hour out of their busy week to study the Word of God together. We pray that this has been a blessing today. We're laying the groundwork for the study of one of your great revelations to the human race, your moral law. And as we laid the groundwork and we'll continue that next week, this is profound. This is one of the most important things to really understand and how you bridged the gap with ancient Israel and to also, as we started to say, to see how this points to Jesus who fulfills all of the law and is that permanent bridge between you and the lost human race. And the only requirement to walk that bridge is faith in the finished, accomplished work of Christ. I pray that every man has made that decision of faith. I pray that they are continuing to learn day by day by day what it means to walk with you in loving obedience and to just cultivate that intimacy and that personal relationship with you, O God, our creator and our redeemer desire. It has to be on your terms, and that's the beauty of all that Jesus has done for us because he solved that problem. So I pray your blessing on each man as we go our separate ways. We pray for this individual that called Fred. Lord, uh, we don't know the details, but we do know we never pray to give you information. You have the information. It's to cultivate that relationship of dependence and trust. And so for this man, you know all the details. You know all the specifics. Lord, whatever his need is, whatever the challenge is in his life, God, would you meet that? Would you help him through that? And would you accomplish what you want to accomplish in and through his life uh, uh, because of this? So we commit this guy to you. So dismiss us now with your blessings. We go our separate way. Help us to represent you well. In Christ's name, amen. amen. See you next week.